Fellowship Church, I was so grateful to uh, gather here together with you, uh, to see you uh, come on out and to worship the Lord together with this body. It's so important, and I hope it's a refreshing time. Uh, today, I want to talk to you about the book of Numbers. We're going to start a series through the book of Numbers. We've done Genesis, we've done Exodus, we've done Leviticus. Many of you know the Torah's five books. We're going to do Numbers. We're going to take our time through it. It's going to be probably something like 22 sermons. Not all in a row. We'll take little breaks here and there, but it's going to be a long haul, a long journey, but that's what the book is, so I think it's fitting that we take our time through that book. But today, I want to help us see how we should read the book. And so it's going to feel a little uh, maybe teachy today. I want to help us understand how to read the Bible. The Bible's clear. I think anyone can take it and read it and understand something from it. But think about when you read, try to read the newspaper when you were five years old, right? You can't really read the newspaper when you're five years old, right? And then you get to a certain age where you can read the words in the paper, but you don't know what the words are doing together because they're words you don't understand or the sen- sentences are just a little bit past where you're at when you're five or six or whatever. Then when you're 15, you can read the paper and you can understand what the words are saying, but you don't have all the nuances of politics, you don't have any history, you haven't voted yet. And so when you're 50, you can read the newspaper differently than you could when you were 15. So is the Bible simple? Yes. Can a child understand the things that the Bible teaches? Yes. But there's room for growth, right? And of course, as a church, we are committed to help you understand the Bible so you're not dependent on quote-unquote experts. I don't consider myself one, but we don't want you to just come on Sunday, hear what one person says, and not really be able to access it for yourself. I want you to read Numbers. I want you to read Deuteronomy. I want you to read the Bible for yourself and together in your groups, right, and be able to understand it. But it's difficult to learn and understand how to apply some of this stuff. You're reading through Numbers, and some of you maybe are already in Numbers and you're read through the Bible commitment for 2021, and as soon as you hit chapter 1 and they start counting the Israelites by tribe, and you're like, ah, let me just get through chapter 1, and you realize all the way through chapter 4, they're still counting. And you're like, what does this have to do with my marriage? What does this have to do with my job? What does this have to do with raising children? This is really boring. This doesn't connect. So what are your options? Well, throughout history, there have been several options. In medieval times, they would spiritualize the text. And so things would just represent something else, right? Uh, So let's do a a quick... uh, I wasn't really planning this. Let's just see how this goes, all right? When you think of the word cloud, cloud, what do you think of? I just want to see... And this is not a trick. I'm not going to go, ha-ha, dummy. No, it's... There's no right answer. I just want to just your own personal self. You know, what do you think of when you think of the word cloud? Anybody? Network. What is it? Network. Network? Cloud? Okay. All right. Sky? Shade? Okay. Rain? What else? Jesus returning in a cloud, on a cloud? Yeah. Okay. What else? Cloud? What is it here? White and fluffy. Okay. And then what did you say, Renan? 
<laughs> Your eyes get cloudy when you age. I, yes. So you see how there's many things you could do with the word cloud, right? When you read the book of Numbers and you see that God's cloud came over the people and led them, you're like, what do you, what do, you do with that? I'm not in a desert. I'm not in a wilderness. There's no actual cloud above me, so what do I do with that? You can spiritualize it, right, and say that's the, the cloud represents, uh, you know, uh, good, God's goodness, shade covering us from the hot sun. You could put it positive. You could put it negative. It's a cloudy day, this cloud, this fog of depression, and that's kind of lingering. And so the book of Numbers is helping me deal with my depression. You could do whatever you want with cloud, right? You could even import it to, to today's day and make it about networking and all that kind of stuff. Or you could do things with the word cloud uh, to make it relevant. Because if you don't, you're like, I'm not in the wilderness with a literal cloud over me, so this either doesn't connect or we spiritualize it. In medieval times, they often would just spiritualize it, right? Turn it into a picture of something else. The problem was, depending on who you were reading or who you were talking to, the cloud can mean whatever you want. Well, who's to say the cloud means that? Why doesn't the cloud mean this thing over here? Why does wilderness mean this? Why doesn't it mean something else? And there wasn't any restraint, you see? People could just do whatever they wanted with these images. So then the reformers came around, right, 1500s, and they're like, let's put some seatbelt, let's put a seatbelt on this thing. And so they restrained it. But then by the time you get to the late 1700s, early, early 1800s, you have this sort of liberal school of theology, I would say. What we need to do is dehistoricize the text, not worry about the history and what actually happened, and only see spiritual value through it. Well, then your Christians were like, wait, wait a minute. You can't just say Israel didn't happen. Who cares if Abraham existed? There was no exodus from Egypt. You know, who cares about that? It's just the spiritual value. And there was sort of a reaction to that. Some Christians said, no, 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 what we need to do is interpret it literally only. So the cloud doesn't represent everything, anything. The cloud was a cloud. That's it. Well, some others thought, well, that might be a little too far. Because then we're back to that place where it's like, what is the value, right? If it's just a literal cloud and a literal wilderness to literal Israel, and you're not Israel, and you're not in a wilderness, and you don't have a cloud when you walk outside, walking, showing you where to go, Right? It has nothing to do with you. So which is it? And I, what I want to say is kind of go a little bit kind of more back to that reformer pers- reform perspective to say it does have spiritual significance. It is imagery that represents something, but it doesn't represent anything you want. It represents something specific. So let's start with just the first verse. Numbers 1, 1. Numbers 1, 1. Fourth book in the Bible, so start from the left. Pass up Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Find yourself in the book of Numbers, 36 chapters. Uh, Moses uh, composing this for uh, Israel. And what we see right here in the first verse, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So now you have the setting. You'll remember when, it's been a while, but when we were in Exodus, you remember, uh, and we were before that, we were in Genesis. God chose Abraham. Abraham became a people, a group. They became enslaved by Egypt, and they were enslaved in Egypt for four centuries before Moses came back from his wilderness experience, right? Found God out there 
at the burning bush, came back with this commission to lead Israel out of their plagues, destruction. Egypt had no choice to let them go. They left Egypt. Pharaoh changes his mind, chases them down. Red Sea is split open. Israel goes through. As Egypt tries to chase them through the Red Sea, God collapses the waters and wipes out Egypt. Now, Israel is saved from Egypt, but they're not in the promised land yet. They've been rescued from bondage, but they're not home yet. This is the in-between time. The wilderness in between Egypt, bondage, and the land of promise, which is the rest that God is promising them and taking them to. So the Lord spoke to Moses where? In this in-between space, in this in-between time. They're after Egypt, but before going into the promised land. It's in the wilderness. And in fact, the book in Hebrew is called In the Wilderness. And I'm like, why don't we just keep that? Numbers already sounds boring. I already don't want to do it. I hate math. In the wilderness, that sounds a lot more interesting at least, you know, how do they survive, you know, something like that. It's a story, it's a narrative, and it's more than just counting the people, although there's, we'll visit that, obviously. But what do we do with this setting, right? The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness with Sinai. I'm not in the wilderness. Moses isn't around. We don't have Sinai in front of us. There's no tent of meeting right in front of us. And this just happened, right? It's the first day of the second month in the second year after they came out of the land of Egypt. So when they think back to Egypt, it was just a year ago. Here's the setting, and here we already have to figure out how do we find ourselves in this passage. As we read through the book of Numbers, how do do I relate this to my life? What is the practical value of it? Does the wilderness just mean anything? Yeah, the wilderness is a tough experience. So what tough experience are you having? You're having a tough time at, at, at work? There's your wilderness. Uh, your relationship with your girlfriend's not going so great? You're in a wilderness right now. Uh, you know, COVID and masks and distancing and closing restaurants and losing businesses? It's our wilderness experience. See, just fill in the blank, right? And that's too far. We don't want to do that. And sadly, a lot of Christian books do that. A lot of Christian preaching does that. It's not great, because we're not really staying with what the Bible is saying. We're just sticking in there anything we want, and we know that. We don't want to do that. But then again, if we just say, no, this is just about Israel, a physical Israel, a physical place, it's a historical account, that's kind of it, well, then it doesn't have any value for us. So what I want us to do is look at how the New Testament authors handle this. They're teaching us how to read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes. That's not wedging in information and doing anything we want with it. The seatbelt is God's big story. So before we do the look at a verse in the New Testament, let me put it to you this way. When you look at a text, especially in the Old Testament, you look at a passage, you're in the Abraham story, you're in, the, you're in Judges, you're reading about Samson, whatever, wherever you find yourself, first thing we need to do is see how this passage fits in God's big story. Put your story on hold for a second. The problem we run into is we come in and like, I need to figure something out for me. Ooh, wilderness, tough experience, my tough experience. Oh, me, me, me. That's where we go wrong. Okay, what does this have to do with God? The Lord spoke to Moses. God is doing this thing. This is God's story. So the overarching story of God's story in the Bible, you can think of it in these steps. God creates man, man falls, God sends Jesus to redeem man, and then through Jesus, God consummates all of history. He wraps it all up in the end, right? So creation, fall, redemption, 
consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That is the Bible story. That's God's big story. That's the big thing that's happening. So when you read a verse, you go, how does this little story fit into that big story? Well, how does it fit into that big story? Think about this. Fall or creation, fall, redemption, consummation. God creates Adam, right? And then Adam and Eve sin, they disobey. But through Eve's seed and child, there's this promise of this one who's going to come and redeem and restore and crush the serpent, right? And then who will renew the garden so we can enter the garden. Remember, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. There's the big story. Where's Israel's story fit in there? God, again, chooses one man, Abraham. Through the one man, he creates a new people, Israel. Wait a minute. This is, this is Genesis happening all over again. This is, we're still in Genesis, actually. It's the creation story happening all over again. God is taking one, one man with his wife. They disobey. Remember the whole Hagar episode? That wasn't great. But they still have a son, Isaac, who becomes the one through whom the promised seed will come. So you see a picture. God is saying, here's the big picture. I'm just giving you a little story that is the same as the big story. So he takes one man through disobedience. He still brings out that promise. They end up in Egypt. They get out of Egypt. And then Abraham's people become a people. And then the story happens again. The story happens again. There's bondage, slavery. He created a people. There's fall. They're in bondage. Then there's redemption. They get out of bondage and they journey through the wilderness. And then consummation is taking the land. So it's the big story happening on a small scale, right? So this is important for you, because if you don't have that overarching narrative, you're just like when your family's watching a movie and you jump into the room like two, you know, two hours into a two-hour and 15-minute movie, and you're like, what's going on? What's going on? You don't have any context. You don't know what's happening. So we drop in, and we're like, I'm going to read numbers this year. You know, I, I just have never read numbers. I'm going to read it. You know, and then you get stuck, and what is going on? This has nothing to do with anything. You have to think, where does this fit in the big story then you can ask how my story fits into this small story. This is about how God took a people out of bondage, brought them through trials, temptations, wanderings, and eventually gets them into the land. That's your story. Because that's ultimately what God's big story is about. God created you. You've rejected God. Uh, you've wandered from God. Through Christ, you've experienced redemption. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a believer, you've experienced redemption, but you're not home yet. So this is a wilderness story for you. Not because you have a hard time at work, but because that's life. As a Christian, rescued from bondage but not home yet, you're in this in-between land, aren't you? Where you're going to face temptations, you're going to face trials, you're going to be tempted to stray, you're going to be tempted to uh, disobey, and God's committed to leading you through the wilderness. That's how you read Numbers. And the reason why I want to lay that out is because as we move through Numbers, I don't want us to be like, what? How's he relating this? I want you to see how I'm relating it. We don't just get to do whatever we want with the cloud. We don't get to do whatever we want with a rock spewing water. We don't get to do whatever we want with manna or serpents that are poisonous and biting everybody, right? And a bronze serpent held up so they can be healed. What do you do with those narratives? What you do is relate them to the big story 
where Christ is the center of it. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And these things that happened in real history, real time, this isn't Lord of the Rings, this isn't the Chronicles of Narnia, this happened to real people in real time. But who is orchestrating these things to happen? The grand director of the universe. He's producing this thing in real life, in real time, to be a picture to help you, to help you Tomorrow morning when you get up and you don't feel like following Christ, Numbers is there for you for that reason. And to prove that, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we can see Paul interpret Numbers for us. And we're going to return to these themes, of course, as we move through the book of Numbers I'm hoping that this session today, something were to happen and we're not able to move through numbers or something happens to me, Lord forbid, you can still work through numbers by putting on New Testament lenses to see it. Uh, I'm reminded of when I was a kid and they used to put toys in cereal boxes, you know, and you would poor cereal, have seconds and thirds and fourths just hoping this toy falls out, right? Because you don't want to dig your grubby hand in there. Maybe you did. I was, I was a neat kid. No, I don't know. But I remember the morning where that toy would fall out into your bowl. You're like, yeah. And oftentimes it was that reddish, bluish, hazy card that you can't read. And then you have the clear plastic red card that you put on top and now you can read the words through that fuzzy haze. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But trust me, it was cool in the moment. After a while, didn't you realize, you know what, without the red card, if you really look at it, and you're not colorblind, you really look at it, you can see there what's there. The red card makes it easier, but you can see it. And you remember in uh, Luke 24, the disciples are like, I don't get it, man. Jesus came, and I thought he was the one, and then they killed him, and he died, and then now he's not in the tomb. It's, did someone steal his body? What is going on? We don't have any idea what's going on. And you remember how Jesus responded to them? Don't you read your Bibles? You should have been reading the Old Testament and seeing all this stuff happening later because the Old Testament is pictures, examples, analogies that point forward to this reality. You were only reading the surface. You didn't go deeper, and you should have been able to. Now, with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we get that red card. It's helpful. With the New Testament authors, it's like a cheat sheet, and we're able to see it easier but you can still see it for yourself. And if you dwell on it long enough, you're like, Paul isn't crazy. Paul was just reading the Bible really well. Watch this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's encouraging this church where there's a lot of drama going on. Can you imagine a church where people are so uh, selfish that they elbow each other out of the way to get to the communion table and take so many elements, some people don't get a cracker. Some people don't get bread. Paul's literally like, don't, don't you have food at home? What, what, is your, what are you doing? Uh, the, the, the rampant sexual immorality uh, and idolatry, participating in idolatrous things, going, well, it's not really an idol. We know idols don't really exist and making excuses for it. So now, in this chapter, he's going to use the book of Numbers and Exodus to teach them how to not give in to those temptations. You crazy church. But he loves them. He's like, you guys are saints. I get it. You're, you're not, it's not like you're going to hell, but seriously, this is going to be a long letter because I've got to fix some things, and I'm going to use numbers to do it. So here in chapter 10, he says right at the top in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now pause there a second. Our fathers? Who's he writing to? Who are the Corinthians? Were the Corinthians mostly Gentiles or Jewish? What do you think? They're Gentiles. How are the Israelites in the desert their fathers? Well, because they're their spiritual fathers. That's why. And so he gives them ownership over that story. You don't get to be like, oh, that's, that's for Jews. That's, that's, that's for a different people. No, that's for a people of faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. There it is. And all passed through the sea. These are all symbols. The cloud, the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. Baptized? Go back and read Exodus. Were they ever baptized? No. Well, when were they baptized? Paul's saying that's what the sea was. When, we're, when we put that tank up here and somebody confesses Christ and we put them down in there, we're saying they're out of bondage now. This is death. And Jesus took death for them. Why? To rise them, raise them up out of death and come out of it alive. They went through the sea because of faith in God. They passed through the sea. The waters of judgment were pushed aside so they can get through. And then a people try to go through that don't have faith. What happens to them? The waters of judgment kill them. God's wrath remains on them. Well, that's what baptism is. That's, that's actually what baptism is. So Paul's not off his rocker. He's reading the Old Testament the way he's supposed to. That those waters represent God's judgment. And God splits it open for only his people of faith to pass through. So he calls it being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. And you're like, well, I guess I remember they had manna. You remember that bread that would just magically appear on the ground, and they'd eat it, and it was tasty, and I don't really know what the consistency was and what you could do with it. Can you bake pies? Or, I don't know, but it was food, sustenance in the middle of the wilderness. And you remember the water when they were complaining about water. Moses spoke to the rock, and the rock spewed water, or was supposed to speak to it, and he strikes it. And water comes out of a rock. Water's not supposed to come out of a rock, but that's God's way of saying in this crazy place where you would die if you didn't have some kind of miracle sustenance, I make, I, I make it happen. I provide sustenance in a place where you would otherwise die. That's why water comes out of a rock. But notice that Paul says, doesn't say, you remember they drank food, they ate food and drank drink. They ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. Well, manna was a physical bread, and the water that came out of the physical rock was physical water. What are you talking about? What Paul is saying is those physical realities represented something spiritual. That you're on a spiritual journey out of bondage. And that's not him just interpreting it any way, any way he wants to. He's saying, what is God doing with this story? God is the one that brought them into the wilderness. God is the one that orchestrated the bondage. God is the one that orchestrated the rescue. God is the one that's bringing them into the land. God is creating this story. And Paul is saying, what is God doing with that story? It has a spiritual meaning. It has a spiritual meaning. So every time they ate manna, that has to do with you. Because do you need spiritual food? Every time they drank out of a rock, that means you. Why? Because are you thirsty? Do you feel like you're going to die in this parched land where you're a Christian, but you're not home yet? Yeah, it's hard. And you need spiritual sustenance. You need that. But you don't go to a rock out in Bussy Woods and kick it and hope water comes out of it. So what do you do? Well, you turn to Christ. 
That's how you get sustenance. Therefore, the rock always represented Christ. Paul's not making it up. That's what it was always there for. Listen to what he says. They ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Wow. The rock was Christ? Yes. That's it, the, the, Paul has a, what we call a Christocentric interpretation of the Bible. Christ is the story. Christ is the center. That big story of fall, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, that's a story of, of God through Jesus Christ doing those things for us. Therefore, the whole Bible is about that. And if the whole Bible is about that, the whole Bible is about Jesus. So then in Luke 24, those disciples that are confused, Jesus says, don't you read your Bibles? And he takes them through the Bible and talks to them about how all these passages speak about him. What portion of the Bible? Well, the Old Testament. New Testament hadn't been written yet. So he's walking them through all these things, going, see the rock? Me. See the baptism? Me. See the manna, the bread from heaven? Me. And this is what Paul is doing. Oddly, though, he says they drank from the spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Now, if you took that one way, you could say this rock was always just following them around. They turn around and the rock stops. And then they walk and they look and the rock is a little closer, but it stops. Like, what is going on? A rock is following them around? We know the cloud followed them. That makes sense. How does a rock follow them around? Well, it followed them around in a sense. The first time that they drink water from the rock is Exodus 17. And then the second time they drink water from the rock is Numbers 20. They drink water from the rock in the beginning of their journey. They drink water from the rock toward the end of their journey. And that's sort of bookends to that episode, that story. And that's God going from beginning to end, I provide what you need to not die of thirst in the land. Right? God's provision followed them. God's sustenance followed them. He never left them hanging in the desert. He never just left them hanging in the wilderness. He supplied what they need when they needed it to get by, to get through, and to make it to the promised land. So how are, you, how are we going to make it? Christ, our sustenance. That's why we sing to Him. That's why our lives are centered on Him. He is that spiritual rock that moves and follows us through the desert. Even though their rock didn't physically move, he was always there with them. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So you have this rock that follows them, and, and by the way, like if you read Deuteronomy 32, God is the rock, God is the rock, God is the rock, or like Psalm, uh, the Psalms that uh, proclaim that God is our refuge, He is our fortress, He's our strength, He's our rock, over and over again, Psalm 18. And so again, Paul not making it up, just saying he's our rock, but they didn't always use him as the rock. They, they would reject him as the rock. They go, no, 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 I want a different sustenance. I want to make it through this wilderness a different way. Your way, I don't like it. I want something else. Or some of them were like, you know what, forget this wilderness. Egypt is looking pretty good right now. Why did I start coming to church? Why did I start following Christ? It's, it's really hard. I can go back to living how I want to live without this constraint of, you know, read the Bible, sing, be together, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, all the pressure. I'd rather just go back. If you've ever felt that temptation or that thought has ever crossed your mind, welcome to the club. It's always been like that. And Paul is saying they had this rock that provided everything they needed for them, but they didn't always do it 
Uh, they didn't always lean on him as their rock, and so they were overthrown. Not all of them, but the ones that grumbled, the ones that rejected him. And as we move through the book of Numbers, we're going to see a people that are relentlessly unfaithful. Some of you think, man, if God would just show up and do something miraculous and big in my life, then I would really follow him. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Remember they asked Jesus for a sign? He's like, I'm not giving you a sign. It would be wasted on you. No matter what I do, no matter how I perform, if you don't want to follow, you're not going to follow. And you read through the book of Numbers, it's so frustrating. God showed up in huge ways. Can you imagine being thirsty and it's water's out of a rock? Not a couple drips like they have to lick the rock. It's gushing out of there. Then they get sick of the bread and God sends quail and the quail are flying really low. They just go out there and open their hands and bring home bushels full of quail. No hunting, no slinging, no traps, no snares. God provided in such miraculous ways. And then what do they do next? Grumble and complain. And so with many of them, we're going to see that there are times where God has to judge them. There are times where God has to get rid of some that are just ruining it for the rest of the bunch. Their complaining and their rebellion is going to lead the faithful ones astray. But he always keeps the faithful going even if he has to overthrow some that aren't faithful. But Paul is telling the Corinthians, you guys think you're really cool with all this, you know, playing around with this idolatry stuff? It's not cool, and it's not funny. Do you remember back in Numbers? God operates that same way today. And man, he will take you out. (laughs) You will not make it home. You will not make it to the promised land if you're here for monkey business. This is a time to get serious about the sustenance that you need, which is Jesus Christ. Not everyone took it that way, and today, not everyone takes it that way. So he says, in verse 5, that some of them, most of them, he says, were overthrown in the wilderness. They were taken down, they were laid low. And he says in verse 6, watch this, now these things took place. Why do these things take place? Why am I reading through the Bible and I have to go, why do I have to do numbers? Numbers is there for you. He says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So you read numbers, you're like, man, this is a frustrating people. I can't believe they keep falling, they keep falling. And the Holy Spirit sneaks in there and he's like, that's you. You'll fall. Easy to blame them, like, you dummies, I can't believe you're catching quail like it's nothing, and the next day you complain. Moses is grand deliverer, and you're like, yeah, why should we follow Moses? Are you kidding? I would be, want to be Moses' best buddy. Can I get you a drink? Can I be? I'd be like the most sycophant fanboy you can think of. Moses? And they're like, man, Moses. Seriously, he took on Pharaoh. His staff turns into a serpent and eats all the other serpents. Moses! Man, wow, that's frustrating. Yeah, I do the same thing. God says, go here. I don't want to go there. God says, drop that. I'm like, yeah, I like it. That's the same thing as rejecting Moses. And you need to be careful with that. You need to be careful with that. We read the book of Numbers because it's there as examples for us. That's why I don't want to blow through Numbers in three sermons. It's inspired. It's profitable. And I want to squeeze the profit out of the book of Numbers. For you, for us, for the value it's going to give us for living life as not idolaters, as people who aren't giving into temptation, because we desire evil. 
And the text is there in numbers. Those passages, those stories are there so that we won't desire evil as they did. Because without it, without the book of Numbers and all other scripture passages like it, we will desire evil. So he says in verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. He's quoting Exodus here. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's Exodus 32, the golden calf. Were they... Moses is taking too long. Let's take off our earrings, mold it into a calf, and let's dance around that and worship that. What did Aaron do? Moses' brother, yeah, uh, cool idea. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. It wasn't about the golden calf. It was about license to do what their flesh wanted to do. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Wow. We shouldn't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when people come and they hang out at church and they're part of it for a while and then they leave. That's always been happening. Sometimes it's God orchestrating, kind of pruning the bunch. Don't be a part of that group. I'm not talking about people that move away and there's, there's legitimate reasons to change churches or whatever. I'm talking about people that fall away from the faith. They don't follow anymore. They don't love God. It was just a thing for a while. They end up loving something else more. They chase a golden calf because something else is new and shiny and they want that. And that thing excuses their lifestyle choices and their behaviors. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That'll be an interesting sermon when we get to that one. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. People complained, they entered into sexual morality. What they were doing was testing Christ, testing him. See how far they could get away, pushing the boundaries. And what Paul is saying is Christ draws a line. And he's like, no, 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 you're cut off. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example. There it is again. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken over you that is not common to man. It happened to them in the wilderness. It happens to you, to the Corinthians in Paul's day. It happens to you today. This wilderness is a time of temptation, and you will be tempted. Don't think, woe is me. It happens to everybody. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. There's the redemption path that you may be able to endure it. Well, how does the book of Numbers continue? How does it move forward? Going into the land. The ones that make it, make it into the land. The ones that test Christ, grumble, complain, enter into sexual morality, worship something else, they don't make it into the land. And as we read through Numbers and we see that rhythm happening over and over again, we're supposed to ask ourselves, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Or do I really like the bondage better? And that's the question that you're going to face over and over again. How do we know? How do we know we'll make it? Where your focus has to be Christ. His work, what he's done, his spiritual sustenance. And I know that sounds really cliche, but when it comes down to it, when you're having a problem and someone comes up to you with a verse, it's like, ah, a verse, I don't want another verse. 
give me like a, like a, a saying, a motto. I'm going to go see a psychiatrist. See, isn't that the same thing? God's word isn't good enough. God's direction isn't good enough. We want something else. It's like you're a friend that's caught in some messed up stuff and they don't come to you because they know you'll tell them the truth. And what do they go? They go to the friends that just enable them. Won't tell them the truth. They'll be like, yeah, don't listen to those haters. You do you. You do you. You're going to destroy your life. I'm reminded of a quote from Oscar Wilde, not a Christian, who says, true friends stab you in the front. Surround yourself with people that will say, hold you to the rock. I know this is a tough wilderness, but don't stray. Ah, you're cramping my style. Leave me alone. You're going to end up building a golden calf somewhere. These are examples for us. These are warnings for us. And we don't want to sit in this sort of cocky position of thinking, look at Israel, how wayward they were. It's supposed to be a mirror. That's how examples work. See this example? That's you. It's an example not to follow. Don't stray. And think about how practical he gets. Grumbling? I mean, are you ever tempted to grumble? And I don't mean an honest prayer like in the Psalms, like, Lord, why? How long? We saw those Psalms, and it's appropriate to ask questions like that of the Lord. That's different than grumbling the way the Old Testament uses it and the way we see it there in Numbers, where it's like, oh, this, I don't want it. I just don't want to follow that. That's, oh, I, I don't like it. I don't like that. And as that grows and festers in our hearts, we need to stamp it out quickly. You think about verse 8, indulging in sexual immorality. And we may not dance around a calf and do it in overtly public ways. But it comes down to those moments when you're alone and you click on something you shouldn't click on. Or you weren't looking for it and an advertisement came and you click on that. It's those second and third glances. It's thinking too long about someone that's not your spouse in a way that's not like you're just praying for them as a friend. Right? Those things start deep in the heart and they fester, and they start boiling up, and we've got to stamp it out. And one of the tools that God gives us to keep our hearts in line is to focus our attention on Christ. How do we do that? One of the tools he gives us is the book of Numbers. Scripture stories that are accounts that continually point our wandering hearts to Christ who saves. Our hearts are like broken alignment. You let go of the wheel, it... It goes into another lane. Well, who's going to keep that wheel straight? Christ. Leaning on him. And how did he teach his disciples to evangelize and make disciples? By going out there, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so obedience is hard. It's a hard road. Why in this wilderness? How come I don't get saved and just immediately get zapped into heaven? God wants a wilderness time. Wilderness time is showtime. That's where we demonstrate to the watching world that we live by a water, a drink, and a food that is otherworldly. And so we engage in politics differently because of that. We raise our kids differently because of that. We, we thrive in our marriages differently because of that. Not because our marriages are devoid of problems, but because it's part of the wilderness test. It's part of the wilderness story. And we thrive in all these different areas because our focus and our attention is on Christ. If it weren't, our hearts would stray. So as we close in this song, 
I'm hoping that our hearts would be brought back, this attention brought full back to, to Christ, this Redeemer who saves us and promises to bring us to the end for His own glory. And as we move through the book of Proverbs, I encourage you to go ahead and read ahead. There's no such thing as spoilers. Push ahead through, through numbers. Write your questions down and start squeezing the juice and profit out of that book. Father, as we close our time, we are grateful to you that you have provided Jesus as our bread, our daily bread that we need, our sustenance. Uh, when we are hungry and thirsty um, and we feel those pangs, uh, we are satisfied in Jesus who changes our lives, changes our hearts, changes our minds. And Father, as we read through the Bible and we see these stories of your faithfulness and so often the unfaithfulness of your people, but you still make a way, your relentless pursuit of demonstrating your enduring love, your covenant faithfulness. Father, we are amazed. And so we know that you'll get us home, not so that we can boast. You'll get us home so you can boast, so you can have the glory and the honor and the praise. And we do that now. We don't want to wait till we're in the land of rest. Uh, right now in the wilderness, we want to pause and lift up our voices to proclaim that you are worthy of all honor and praise and glory because you are our rock, our deliverer, the God who saves. We pray it in Jesus' name. Would you stand and we'll close in a song with me.